So in the last five Sundays, we have labored intentionally to go through the book of Numbers. It is often a book that is ignored or even assumed, but as we have seen, beneath the pages, beneath the repetitions that are there, beneath the details, beneath the boring, at times boring details and data, therein we have some spiritual treasures that can be able to help us in our work of faith. We, if you want to read the book of Numbers well, you can use this image that the book is structured in a way that first shows God ordering his people, you know, the dis, I mean, order, disorder that came from sinful grumbling and complaining. Then the final chapters is reordering. Again, God reordering his people. And the book of Numbers, at least for the sake of our visitors, records the event that took place in the wilderness. God had saved his people from the land of Egypt, but he was taking them to the promised land. So they were a people in transit. Actually, Egypt was a land of slavery and scarcity, and God was taking them to this promised land, the land that he, people would say that it's a land flowing with milk and honey, showing and depicting an image that it, indeed it was a land of freedom and abundance. And in Egypt, you may remember their, their hard work, their hard input, their heavy investment returned very, very little. But in this place that God is going to take them, that their little input is going to yield so much because they are under the care of God. We titled this series, In Between. This is because, as I have shared earlier, that it narrates the incidences of people who are on transit, people who are from the land of Egypt to the promised land. They were not yet there, but they were looking forward to it. And we share that it is the very same thing for us as believers, that when we confessed, when we prayed that the Lord forgive our sins, and we received Jesus Christ in our hearts, and we acknowledge that he is our Savior and he is our Lord, then we were redeemed from the land of slavery that is sin, and we are on our way towards heaven. We are not yet there. We are in between. And if we persevere and we have the zeal of God, indeed, God is going to take us there one day. Jesus, in the book of John, refers to you and me, refers to you, Christians, believers, as being in the world, but not of the world. Last week, you, we ambitiously, I don't know how, to cover chapters. Do you know how many chapters he covered? 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. And you guys, none fell. So today, I would like us to camp in chapter 25, 26, and 27, and then um, later, perhaps in your own reading, you can read the other verses, the other chapters, so to speak. But the journey has been long, so let me share this so that you may turn there. Chapter 25, you're going to, to come there a little bit. Um, the journey has been long, and we tracked with these people in their initial months in this wilderness. And we have been with them, and we have seen how they behaved themselves and how they conducted themselves for those 40 years under the discipline and the punishment of God. Now they are almost there. They are about to get in there. Perhaps one of the questions that you ask, 
maybe as you were coming, you who knew that we are going to tackle the last someone today from this book, you're asking, are they going to arrive in the promised land? After all the things that they have done, after they are complaining and grumbling, are they going to arrive in the promised land? The book of Numbers leaves us hanging. It doesn't take us to the promised land. That is going to happen later in a book called Joshua. But as much as it leaves us hanging, it, this book assures us that the promise of God to give them the promised land is sure and certain. And so today, as we have looked in, that with, you know, in, in this book, other themes, today we are going to talk about the inheritance that actually the thing that God was promising them, the thing that God was assuring them, their rightful inheritance in God is something that God is just about to do. And so whatever happens today, we are going to look into that. And the next 30 or so minutes, we, you'll be able to hear this word happening and repeating itself. That is the word inheritance. Last week, in those five chapters where we checked, we unpacked the story of a false prophet called Balaam and a pagan king of Moab called Balak. And you may remember that we looked at how even the donkey would talk. Do you remember that? You know, the donkey talked and even saying, oh yeah, I mean, I have served you all this long. Why are you beating me like this? And the guy has, you know, they have a conversation with the donkey. And we say that it is a story that takes us out of the camp of the people of Israel and now into the enemy's camp. And the enemy of the people of Israel, they were planning on how they can be able to bring down the people of Israel through the pronouncements of curses. So Balak and other Midianites, you know, they conspire together and they procure the services of a well-known pagan, pagan prophet called Balaam. This guy was well-known and he was very, very effective because Balak says, as we looked at last week, that whatever you bless is it's blessed and whatever you curse, it is cursed. So this story happens without these guys knowing, the people of Israel knowing. And we did see that God showed his sovereign power and an opposed character by making this guy who was coming to curse the people of Israel actually to pronounce blessings. But even more so, to be able to tell them that there is another king who will come in future. He says that in chapter 24. And this is about Jesus. This is about the messianic prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter, which is a sign of authority, will rise out of Israel. And so these pronouncements come from one who never feared God, and this was a pagan king. In chapter 25, ignorant and oblivious of the surrounding danger, the people did not know that actually they were enjoying the protection of God. That there was a battle that was happening, but God was shielding and protecting his people. He told Balaam, do not cast those people, for they are blessed. And who are these people who are blessed? These were whiners and grumblers, disobedient sinners. These are the guys who refused the gift of, uh, of Canaan, the gift of the promised land. 
They said, no, let us choose a man amongst us who will take us back to Egypt. We do not want to go to that promised land. They refused. These are the people, brothers and sisters, that God is calling them blessed. These are the people who despised, you know, the provisions of God. They said here, there's nothing that we're eating, only this manna, day in, day out. We don't like it. Let us go back to Egypt where we are going to eat the onions, the leeks, broccolis, and the commandes, you know, of the day, right? You know, let us go back there. Do you see broccolis, commandes, you know, leeks? Instead of the manna, which the Bible says that it tasted so good, like something deep fried in olive oil. They despised that. And they said they want to go back and eat broccolis and onions and commanders, and commander which no one knows where it is grown. <laughs> and we say that. Have you ever seen farmers of commander? <laughs> Have you ever seen where commander is grown? Have you ever seen it being transported in the market? But it is always there. It's one of the most amazing things that I do not know. No one, it's like Melchizedek. No one knows where it's coming from or where it's going, but it's always there and a bit expensive. I like it. My wife is right here. She makes it for me uh, as much as we do not know where it originates from. <laughs> or you guys know where it is farmed? Have you ever seen farmers of Kamande? Okay, you, you're just like me. You do not know. But you always find it in the market. Anyway, back to our story. Oblivious of what was happening, God thwarts the plan of the enemies. God says, no, my people are not going to be cursed. My people are blessed. But even after this marvelous doing from God, instead of a humble and a faithful response towards God, chapter 25 opens with very, very sad words. While Israel was staying in Shittim, that is verse 1, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Who invited them to the, uh, to the sacrifices to their gods? The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Friends, a people protected by God, a people blessed by God, God's covering grace was upon them, They'd respond towards God with disgraceful living. While God was blessing them through Balaam on the heights of Peor, below the plains of Moab, Israel was immersing themselves. Israel was immersing itself in sinful living. God's gracious acts meet people who never wanted to know anything or to be associated with him. While God was blessing them, the men responded to God with spiritual infidelity and sexual perversion. Actually, the verb there, sexual immorality there, the, the verb there, from the original language, it's zana, or where we get the word zina. You may know magonjo, yeah? Right, now that's it. The original language has, uh, it's related to Arabic, which Swahili comes from also. And this magonjo zina, has an idea that they gave themselves freely 
to the Moabite women. God shields them from their enemies, but they run to their enemies freely with open hands, embraces the enemies of God. And from this successful enticing from the people of Moab, later throughout the Old Testament, this become a constant and a powerful and persistent temptation for generations to come. One of it came from the wisest man who ever lived, and that is King Solomon, who again yoked himself, who bonded himself. And the 12 tribes that we are reading here today, they were divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom, because Solomon, the wisest man, was unable to overcome these enticing, these temptations. And the people went to, uh, to, to Babylon, the people went to exile because the leaders were unable to control their sexual appetite. These people who are one. So these guys, they leave the community of faith and they go to Moab and there they do all these things and even they bow to these, you know, to these gods of, you know, of, of, of the, the Baal, of Peor. They bow before them. Having seen the miracles of God, having been sustained by God, they go and bow down before an image created by human hands, an image that has ears but that cannot hear, an image that has hands but cannot save, an image that has eyes but cannot see, they bow before that. That is what aroused God's anger. At first, they were pen- I mean, interested in sexual immorality, but even they started now attending their ungodly feasts. And this happens because Balaam, when Balaam was unable to cast the people of Israel, do you know what he did? Actually, the book of Revelation hits this very, very well. This is what happened. And John, let me read it for you. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church in Pagamam, verse 14 says, Nevertheless, I have few things against you. This is the church. The church in Pagamam had been praised, but John writes and says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there in the church. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So Balaam, our friend, you remember from last week, when he was defeated, do you know what he did? He went and told Balak, I have another plan. These guys will not be able to overcome the temptations of our women. And so that's what happened. So Balaam is still pursuing them. The devil is, does not give up easily. He is patient. And now comes up with another plan. Let us use this back door route. And that's how the men yoked. Verse 3 says there in chapter 25. Let's go back to chapter 25 of Numbers. So Israel joined. That word there is the word yoked. They bounded themselves. Actually, they devoted themselves. What a false start to start enjoying the blessings of God. God had providentially cared for them. But this is how they respond. The leaders of Israel fell to the rock bottom of moral failure because of their lust. Verse 3, 4 says, The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders 
of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of you are men who have joined in worshipping the bar of Peor. So the men had to die. But during that time, this is what happens. See the arrogance of sin. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So the guy is no longer again in Moab. Now he has brought these people who have enticed them, the enemies of God's people, now even to the altar. It says there, to the tent of the meeting. As other people are weeping, and maybe they were repenting, these guys in arrogance, all right, comes around and into the tent of the meeting, and it was placed at the center, brings this girl and gets with her into the tent. This is what he says. When Phinehas, verse 7, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. So the guy is no longer here in the assembly. You know the way the tents, you remember in the first sermon, how the tents were arranged, right? The entrances facing the tabernacle, the center, which had formed sort of a cross. You may remember that. So this guy comes and passes there and gets into cube 19, his cube, that is a tent. If you thought that they were there for prayers, this is what Phinehas did. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. So you, I don't want to paint a mean, an image here, but you can only imagine if it pierces one and gets into the other, so you imagine the proximities, right? You may imagine what they were doing. Anyway, let me, for the, for the ones who imagine, let me save you the agony. Then it says there, then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague, number 24,000. Balaam had tried to cast these people, but by enticing them, by using their sexual desires and their lust, 24,000 of them died without a sword, without any curse. That is what happened, brothers and sisters. So, they bring their prostitution even to the tent, to the assembly of God. This guy is named later, here in verse 14 of chapter 25, the name of the Israelite who was killed with a Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. And I was interested actually to dig deeper into the meaning of these names. I'm always interested in that. And Zimri, actually Zimri means my praise. The guy, instead of praising the Lord, the saving God, he disgraces God by bringing the enemy of God. Cosby, before you take that name, for those who, of you who are heavy laden, Cosby, a beautiful name there, but it means a liar, my lie. So even from the names, we just get an idea of the intention of the enemy. But before we get angry 
at Israel's ungrateful response and their quick rush to wickedness, we need to evaluate our lives as well, brothers and sisters. So in what ways have you taken the kindness of God for granted? In what ways have you presumed the grace of, uh, the grace of God? Tafakari Hayo. This story is here to show us the dangers of, un, you know, of, of ungrateful and thankless living. That when you are thankless, you will chase after sin and abandon the true and the faithful God. But friends, it is astonishing to me that no matter what they did, God still doesn't leave them. These disloyal people, we are shown disloyal people, but a faithful God. In chapter 26, after the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, take a census of the whole Israel community by families, all those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. So on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, Across from Jericho, Moses and Eliezer the priest spoke with them and said, take a census of men 20 years old or more as the Lord commanded Moses. So you may remember this from Numbers chapter 1. Again, it's almost the same thing that God asked Moses and Aaron, please count the number of, the number of the people, the men who can fight. And Moses did that. But now again, the same census is repeated. This is actually the reason why this book is called the book of Numbers. And so the 12 tribes were counted again. Let me just take you uh, closely. The tribe of, in chapter 26, verse 5, the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, in verse 7, they were 43,000. This is now the second census. They were 43,730. Initially, from the first 40 years before this, they were 46,500. The second tribe is the tribe of where are they, these guys? Um, the, the, the descendants of Simeon, by their clans, in verse 12, they are named there, and then the summation is given in verse 14. They were the clans of Simeon. These were the clans of Simeon. There were 22,000 men. That was striking to me, because in the first count, they were 59,300 fighting men. But now, do you know how many they are? There are only 22,000, a 63% drop. And I was curious to know why this drop? If you have just remembered about our story about Zimri and Cosby, this is what the Bible says. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. Do you see that? So it's like the majority of the men in this clan, they were tempted to go and do this bad thing. And through that, God reduces them to only 22,000. Other tribes, in verse 18, the, the tribe of God, they were 40,000. They had reduced also from 45,000 initially. Then the tribe of Judah, they were, they were 76,000. Initially, they were 74,000. So they have, they have multiplied. They have increased. The Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, they were 64,000. In the initial account, in the first count, they were 54,000. So also they have increased with about 10,000. The tribe of Zebulun, they were 60,000. 
From the first count, there were 57,000. You can do the comparison. But the number is given, and the total summation, and you can do this for the mathematicians who want to confirm if the Bible has any error. I did this about three times last night, and the total number of men in verse 51 was 601,730, and it tallies to the number. Do you remember the first count, how many men they were? They were 603,550. Now, after 40 years, the number is almost the same. Give or take. The number is almost the same. And beneath that simple summation, we see the power of God to keep and sustain. It is very, very hard and impossible to explain this phenomenon. But that's why he is God. Even after 40 years, the strength and their might is not taken away. They are still as strong as they were from their onset. Meaning that if they had obeyed God, this would be their 40th year in the promised land. But they are not yet there. They are just at the border. That beneath these repetitions here, these tribes and all that, we are reminded that God is the only one who has the ability to strengthen and to sustain and to keep and to save his people. An entire generation has fallen down in the wilderness, but God has preserved their might, fighting men, 600,000 brothers and sisters. So what do we learn from these senses? Jump with me to chapter 26, verse 52. The Lord said to Moses, the land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. That this promise is guaranteed. They are not yet there, but God is saying, this land I'm going to give you, this is how you're going to distribute it. You are not yet there, but the land is yours. The promise is guaranteed by God himself. It has been long, but they are just about to take over the land. And as much as it's not going to be easier, their victory is assured. God is with them. And the strength of the army is still there. And God doesn't speak to them with ifs or, 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 or maybe. It's not a matter of if. He has secured their promise and has strengthened them. Friends, also in our journey of faith, as we walk this journey of faith on our route towards heaven, let us remember that the devil is well-stocked. Let us not give up, but let us be strengthened. The fight seems, may seem endless, but these senses here shows us that God has not denied his people the power to fight and the power to overcome the enemy. Whether they are battles from within or without, brothers and sisters, we also, us who are seated down here, we can also be able to resist the temptations of the enemy. But we must always remember that sin doesn't concede defeat easily, as we have seen from the narration of Balaam. But we are strengthened to move safely to the promised land. The devil's arsenal is diverse and well-stocked. He has everything that he needs. But let us remember that we are strengthened. That's why earlier in the year, we started with a series called The Seven Deadly Sin. You may remember that, talking about sloth, laziness, wrath, that is anger, lust, pride, greed, gluttony, envy. You remember all those? And we say that God has strengthened us. So friends, even for us today, the census from the book of Numbers, beneath that repetition, God reminds us today that he has equipped us and we can be able to overcome any enemy. That their victory and your victory, friends, is sure and your reward is ready. 
that there is land for you. God says there, to a larger group, give a larger inheritance, and to a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. So God is saying that this is sure, this is for you, brothers and sisters. The land is ready. Give it according to names. According to the lots. And you may remember that, you know, even in the book of Proverbs, and it says that, yes, a lot can be tossed, a dice can be tossed, but God is the one who determines the outcome. In verse 55 to 56, be sure that the land is distributed by lot. What each group inherits will be according to the names of the ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. The land is prepared, the land is portioned, and the land is preserved for you. Canaan, friends, is ready for the arrival. God is faithful. He will deliver his promise. They shall inherit the land. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Then after that, we are given, the, then from verse 57 all through to verse 61, we are the verse 62, sorry, the number of Levites is counted. You may remember that for them they are counted differently because they are not to inherit, they are not supposed to inherit the physical land. God had said that they are, they are going to inherit him, that he is their portion. So they are also numbered, but differently. There were 23,000 Levites, also an increase of about 1,000. In the first, in Numbers chapter 1, there were 22,000. And they were, so even for them they have grown. In verse 63, it says there, these are the ones counted by Moses and Eliezer the priest when they counted the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across the Jericho. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron, the priest, when they counted the Israelites in the desert of, in the desert of Sinai. For the Lord had told those Israelites they would surely die in the desert. And not one of them was left except Caleb, son of Jephna, and Joshua, son of Nun. God is saying from here that the faithfulness of God is not imbalanced. He means what he says. He will deliver his promises. He will never fail to carry his promises, but also his judgment. He had told them, all of you turn back and go back to the Red Sea. You are going to fall down here one by one and die in this desert. God is here again reminding them, I have fulfilled what I said. You know, there are many people here who are banking on God not to carry his promised judgment. Sometimes he sends even those memes that what if, you know, we reach heaven and then we realize actually there was no hell, there was no threat. Friends, don't take lightly. People holding on to hope that God's love will hoodwink him from carrying out his judgment. He did, and that's what we see here. What God has promised to do, he will do. The book of Hebrews says, you know, I mean in chapter 9, would say that it is appointed for man to die, and then after that, judgment will come. You may remember the book of Jude, verse 15, that says that God will judge and God will convict. That there is a place where people will be gnashing their teeth. So God will carry you to the promised heaven, for he is faithful, but God will judge the ungodly because he is still faithful God. He will punish sin. He will judge the guilty sinners, as he did here, but also reward the faithful followers, like he did to Phinehas. 
Be careful, brothers and sisters, not to fashion a God that you want. We can't edit his speech. And sometimes people will come and ask, did God really say, is this God, God of love, the same God of justice and judgment? We can't edit, and any ministers who edit the speech of God to fit our modern comprehension so that it can make sense is misleading you. This is what God told Moses. The immovable and faithful God has said it and will fulfill it. He will deliver his promises. He will deliver his judgment. And God didn't budge from his judgment. He did that even to Moses, as we'll see in a few minutes. So friends, then after that, in chapter 27, if you may give me a few minutes, there is a category of people who are afraid that they might be disinherited. These are the daughters of a man called Zilophehad. Yes, I pronounced it right. I've tried all through the night to pronounce it. Now it's failing me here. The daughters in chapter 27, verse 1, the daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belong to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. And again, the narrator here is trying to show that they had a legitimate claim towards the inheritance because they were people of God. The names of the daughters were Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza. They approached the entrance to the tent of meeting and stood before Moses, Eliezer the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly and said, Our father died in the desert. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died of his own sin and left no son. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan? Because he had no son. Give us property among our father's relatives. I love these girls because they come to God himself. And the one thing that I like about them is that they didn't doubt the promises of God. They were not afraid. They said, give us our father's inheritance. They were looking forward with hope and with great anticipation. They didn't murmur, but they came directly towards Moses. These daughters were part of God's children, but they are at risk. But God says, do you know what? God said, it's right there. We, we are going to, to read it. But this matter was hard to Moses. Verse 5 says, so Moses brought their case before the Lord. You would have expected that you would have just have said, yes, you have the right. But it was countercultural. So Moses went before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, what Zelophehad daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance over to them. Friends, even in our walk towards heaven, in our walk, in our walk towards the promised land, even the weak have a place. No one will miss heaven. This is confirmed here by these daughters. Actually, Zelophehad, the word, again, always interested in meaning of names, means a covering or a shade. Now their father is dead. They are uncovered. They are vulnerable. But God says, even the vulnerable, even those ones who are weak, they do not have someone to, to protect them and to shield them. They are mine. They have a place in this promised land. I will cover them as well. They will receive it, even if it's countercultural. Even if they are fatherless, God has them too. He will be their shed, and even the ones who are considered outsiders, they were part of God as well. God says, I have covered all of them, the strong and the weak, the ones who are outside and the ones who are in. 
the ones who feel like they are on the periphery, all those are promised to have a place and to inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, here in Numbers, behind this data that we, can, we easily ignore, we are reminded that heaven is ready for your arrival. So do not lose sight of what God has in store for you. I'm encouraged by the words of Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, that says, Then the king, that is Jesus, we say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Paul later would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, What no eye has seen, we normally use this word when we are claiming and possessing, houses and beakers and all that, but it is actually not for that. It is for our promised heaven. Paul says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Friends, the promise of eternal life, the promises of heaven, no one can be able to describe. No one can be able to draw. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 would say, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, I love it. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance, the Bible says, is kept in heaven for you and for me. God has made arrangements for you. And so as we go through this in-between season, know that there is a better promise. There is something that God has promised, and it's safe, and it's secure. It is for you. It will never perish, spoil, or fade. How can this encourage you, friends? Some of you could be in a season of grief. I want to encourage you that by the promise of this, you better know that there is somewhere that people of God are enjoying. Let this encourage you in grief. We love calling it loss. But to God it isn't. God says in his word, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. For us it may look ugly, but in the sight of the Lord it is precious. It is something beautiful. Let this be your blessed hope and may you look forward. If for in a moment these promises also could be yours, brothers and sisters. So as we proceed again, the Bible says, In, we continue reading, uh, and actually wanted to make a comment that this issue of the daughters of Zelophehad was such a big one, because it is the one actually that closes the book of Numbers in chapter 36, because some of the relatives came, and they were bothered, and they said in chapter 36, verse 3, now suppose they marry, these girls, these five girls, now suppose they marry from other Israelite tribes, then their inheritance will be taken from their ancestral inheritance, and added to that of the tribe they may marry. You know? So guys, some guys were concerned. They were looking forward. Maybe your land, that's where the bypass will pass. And then that land will be belonging to some other tribes. What about that? And God says, no, no one will be played. None, no, no person's land will be taken away from them because of marriage. So even God says, now you daughters, you the five daughters of the love I had, marry from within your tribes and they married their cousins. Let's proceed. Let, me, let us not dwell there. Back to our chapter so that we may close in a short time. In chapter 27, verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, go up this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land I have given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you too 
You'll be gathered to your people. That is an euphemism saying you will die as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. Verse 15. Moses, and this is why I like Moses. Moses was, wasn't discouraged. Moses still remained hopeful. He was able to see with his eyes where his feet could not land. And you may remember us saying this when Jesus Christ was going through an agonizing moment and Moses and Elijah, they came to comfort him that even later, God was faithful to bring Moses but under the leadership of Jesus Christ into the land. Thousands of years later or hundreds of years later, Moses, the one who had died, now came into the promised land but led and guided by God. And his humility, Moses asked in verse 15, may the Lord God of the spirit of all mankind appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, and that's in military language, because every general must, you know, general is respected because when he goes with his officers and when he comes with them alive and all of them counted for, then he is really a general. One who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses is concerned about this coming generation. Then God answers him. I think these guys, they had such a relationship, Moses and, you know, in verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, simple, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is a spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eliezer the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. So this is where Joshua was commissioned. And Joshua will lead the people now to go into the promised land. But as much as Joshua was such a courageous guy, who will take over the land as much as he was a man who defended the cause of God, the cause of Christ. You may remember the 10 spies who were against the word of God and Joshua said, no, we can go and take over this land. Joshua was courageous. Joshua was humble, serving under Moses. Joshua was everything that these people needed to take them to the promised land. But in your private time of study, read Joshua chapter 9 and you see that even Joshua the man who says that the spirit of God was in him still failed because he got into a covenant with the people or with the enemies of God. So he also failed. And he had to pay such a, 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 a costly price, you know, such an expensive thing because he also didn't inquire of God. He equally failed. But this is what happened. Moses is thinking about the ultimate good of the people. And like Joshua, someone good and perfect must come. And I see that in the person of Jesus Christ. The humble servant, the good shepherd, the one who obeyed his father, the one who consulted his father saying that I and the father are one. He is the full and final answer towards Moses' prayer, brothers and sisters, when Moses prays in verse 16, may the Lord, the God of the spirit of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was the final answer towards Moses' prayer. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the one who defends, the one who says that none can be snatched away from me. He is the other and perfecter of your faith, brothers and sisters. That is the final answer towards Moses' prayer. Joshua, actually Joshua and Jesus, they mean the same. 
The Lord is my salvation. Joshua is in the old Hebrew language. Jesus is the same word as Joshua, but in the Greek language, in the New Testament. But Jesus is the perfect answer. He is the one who said that I have gone to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would have told you. He is sure of the inheritance in heaven. That where I am, you also may be as well. Friends, if we put our hope in any, on any man, we'll be put to shame. I want to encourage you to trust in God through Jesus Christ himself. If you trust your brother, if you trust your sister, if you trust your wife or your husband, if you trust any man, none has the plan. Oh, sorry, it's political. None has the... No leader can be able to take you to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Only Jesus Christ has the perfect plan and we can trust in himself, we can trust in him, and through that, he is able to give us the strength that we need and he is confident of your arrival in heaven for he is there. If Joshua took the people to the promised land, how much more Jesus to take you to the promised land of the heaven, of heaven, where he is at, where we will dwell, where there is no tear, there is no pain, only dwelling in the presence of God. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you.